Well, I've got a question for you to begin with. Do you believe in the devil? Now, that may seem like a rather ridiculous question to this audience, but it would surprise you to know in a recent survey where people were asked some religious questions, nine out of ten Americans still believe in God, which surprised me a little bit maybe that it was nine out of ten. But the thing that really surprised me in that same survey, only six out of ten believe in the Bible count of the devil. That, that was surprising to me. And so that says, if these people were really thinking about the questions the surveyor was asking, that a lot of people who claim to believe in God, and supposedly at least the God of the Bible, don't really believe what God says in the Bible about the devil and about the devil being a real person. Well, the Bible teaches the devil is real. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis in chapter 3, we read in the very beginning about the devil's first interaction with humankind. And he came in the form of a serpent, it says. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it said, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And here's what the devil said in verse 4 to the woman. You will not surely die. And then he added, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Well, we know the rest of the story. That Eve looked at the fruit. She was tempted of the fruit. It was pleasant to her, desired to make one wise. She took and she ate it. She gave it to Adam, and he ate it. And indeed, their eyes were opened. They sinned. They violated the will of God, and they were punished. And why? Well, they chose to disobey. But in the very beginning, we see the devil interacting with Eve, and the devil lied to Eve. And I'll tell you what. The devil's been lying to men and women ever since. From the Garden of Eden, when Eve swallowed this lie, literally, he's continued to lie people, and he's caused people to believe his deceptions. I want to begin a series of lessons this morning, four, maybe five or so, and discuss lies the devil tells us. And the first lie that I want to begin with is this one, that the Bible is not relevant. And the first thing the devil says to us that the Bible is just the opinions of men. Let me join with Kyle welcoming each one this morning. We have a number of guests. I'll look out over the auditorium, and we're glad to have you in our number. We hope that you are edified and uplifted by our time together as we worship, and as for a little while we think about some things from the Word of God that I hope will be practical things for us to consider. You know, I begin this series with, in this lesson, with the presupposition that you do indeed believe in the devil, that you believe that Genesis account, that this is not an allegory, this is not metaphorical, 
And then what Peter said, the devil in 1 Peter 5, 8, is like a roaring lion seeking to be made of our. And did you believe what Jesus said in John 8? That Jesus called the devil a liar and the father of lies. And that you believe in the devil. And I think one of the very first lies the devil tries to bring before us is to undermine our belief in the Word of God. And he begins by simply saying, the Bible is just the opinions of men. You know, there are people in the religious world today that claim to be religious teachers that will tell you that. Some time ago, I ran across a blog by a fellow, Steve McSwain. Dr. Steve McSwain. He has a Ph.D. in theology, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because I think it has led him down. Maybe. I don't know what's led him down. He is an author, a counselor, a speaker to congregations, an interfaith ambassador, and a spiritual teacher, and a human potential guide, says on his website. He wrote a blog not long ago entitled, Six Things Christians Must Stop Saying. And the first one he said is this, we must stop saying the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now, this guy is supposedly a spiritual guide, a spiritual counselor, someone that will, that will talk to congregations and help them. Here's what he said just a little bit in this blog about the Bible. He said, it isn't inerrant and not even likely in the original manuscripts. But I cannot say with absolute certainty more than anybody else. Why? Because no such original manuscripts even exist. That's like saying we believe there are aliens on other planets. Really? He said, well, good for you. Go prove it. As we have it, no matter what translation you favor, the Bible is replete with errors. To pretend otherwise is your right. To say otherwise is a lie. You're entitled to your opinions, your assumptions, even your beliefs. But what you're not entitled to is a misrepresentation of facts. Well, I think Dr. McSwain has misrepresented the facts. But that is the attitude even in the religious world today with any number of people. That the Bible is just the opinions of men. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that word inspiration means God breathed. Now, Dr. McSwain would probably say, and critics of the Bible say, well, of course the Bible is going to say that. You're taking the Bible to prove it by itself and saying it's inspired. Well, let's think about this just a little bit. You think about the books of men that are written, that are authoritative. What book of men among us would make such an audacious claim to have divine inspiration? I, I don't know of any books of men that are like that. The Bible is a unique book that stands alone. Not just in a passage like this. In the Old Testament, over 4,000 times, you have the Old Testament writers, the prophets, speaking forth the message, and they said it comes from the mouth of the Lord. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Again and again and again. 800 times in the Pentateuch, the Moses claims of what he said came from Jehovah God. 25 times in the little tiny book of Malachi, the prophet says it come from God. 
The apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Baxter, in his book on evidences, makes a statement that I believe is true. He says there is an air of infallibility about the writings that make up the Bible. And that's so. The Bible, when you examine it and look at it, is a unique book. It is a different book. It stands out from all other books, and it makes a claim of inspiration. And to claim that we're going to believe the Bible or accept the Bible and believe in God and then reject it is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God is an absurd, and it's a lie of the devil. Now, the devil doesn't walk around anymore. Uh, I say walk around or slither around like a serpent, I don't think, although I don't like snakes too well, and I always kind of look at a snake and think, you know, there goes the devil. But I don't think he's inhabiting serpents, and I don't think the devil is walking around with some kind of a long tail and a pitchfork and pointed ears. You know, the devil uses agency. The devil uses all kinds of means and methods to try to influence people. And it may be through false prophets and false teachers. It may be through writings. It may be through religious people. It may be through blogs like Dr. McSwain's. But I know this, that however the devil works, that when it is said the Bible is just the opinions of men, that is a lie of the devil. Now, the devil will go on to say, well, the Bible is just filled with errors and it, and it can't be trusted. And even if it was once the inspired Word of God, it has been corrupted through the years, and it just can't be trusted. Have you ever heard one someone say or charge, the Bible is full of errors? You know, that, that's been around a long time. Back, back in the 1800s, the French Institute of Paris published this long list of like 181 alleged errors in the Bible. You know what? Not one of them exists today. You know why they don't exist? Because through archaeological findings and historical study, it has shown that what was alleged then to be errors in the Bible had proven to be accurate, that the Bible was right after all. But that is still parroted today by people, people that most of the time have not even studied manuscripts or studied evidence. I'll never forget when I was a student at the University of South Florida and I was taking an event speech class, and this is about 1968 or 9, probably, long in there. And those that lived during that time know that our country was kind of in a tumultuous time, and a person could hardly get up and give a, a speech without being interrupted. The, the hippies were marching. There was all these kind of protests. Kind of sounds like today, protests going on and all this stuff. But anyway, people were being interrupted. So our speech professor thought it would be a great thing for us to give a speech, a controversial speech it had to be, and anybody in class could interrupt us. And we were great on how we dealt with it. So I thought, I'm going to do a speech on the Bible is not a book of man. I, I'm not even going to try to prove there's a God to this class. I'm just going to say the Bible is a divine book, and it's not a book of man. And so that was my little speech. Well, I'd just gotten into it pretty good, and this kid sitting up in the front, and I'll never forget, David Dial, one of my classmates, interrupted me real quick, and he said, what about all the errors in the Bible? Now, I'm a 
21-year-old kid about that time probably. And I looked at David Dial, and I thought, what am I going to say? And quickly, I just said to him, name one, David. And it got real quiet. I said, just name one, one error in the Bible. And he finally mumbled something like, well, I can't, I don't know of any. And I turned to the class and the professor, I said, see there? I said, people say that. There are not errors in the Bible. I was hoping that he had done some kind of in-depth study with some kind of a thing that he might throw at me. But I had enough confidence. I know the Bible is not filled with errors. You know, the supposed errors that critics will try, and some of you young people may go to some university where a professor is going to say something like that to you in a philosophy class or some other kind of class, and he's going to try to quibble with something sometimes. You know the supposed errors in the Bible, and this is according to people that have studied this in depth, that have studied the manuscripts. Tell me that if you took every part of the Bible where there was some question about the translation, it would fill up less than a half a page on a Greek manuscript, and not one would controvert a single doctrine of Scripture. Most of them are comparisons of different copy manuscripts like one manuscript may say the lord jesus christ another jesus christ the lord things like that very very minute kinds of things that you see in manuscripts the bible is not filled with errors there is internal evidence which points to an incredible unity of the bible it was written over a period of 1500 years you know, we look at the Bible as one book, but most of us know it's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And it's a collection of these books written by about 40 different authors over this 15 to 1600-year period. And there are people from all walks of life. You have shepherds and farmers and tent makers and physicians and fishermen and priests and prophets and kings over this period of time writing on a single theme and you put it all together, some in Greek, some in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, and yet it has a wholeness to it. Can you imagine just in this room us picking out 40 people and assigning us to write on a single topic and it all fit together? No contradiction. I, I doubt it very seriously. But yet, over a period of time, of people that didn't even know each other, and yet you see an amazing harmony, an amazing unity to the Bible? Internal evidence speaks to the fact that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. But then you even look at external evidence. Now, Dr. McSwain is right about this. There are no original autographs other scripture that we have in our possession at this time. But you know archaeologists but now have gone all the way back into the second century, the latter part of the second century with, with, with copies of manuscripts. And so we have gotten pretty close. But the thing about it is we have an incredible number of manuscripts. If you look at ancient writings of people like Plato or Aristotle or Homer, there's not very many copies. For instance, of Plato's writings, we only have seven copies of manuscripts. Of Aristotle's, there are 49. Now, there's over 600 copies of Homer's Iliad. But compare that with the Bible, with the manuscripts that we have 
currently an earth of Greek manuscripts, there are over 5,600 Greek manuscripts. And there's over 19,000 copies of manuscripts in Syriac, or uh, Coptic and Latin and Syriac, and Aramaic. 19,000 manuscripts supporting manuscripts for the Scripture altogether are over 24,000 documents. It's incredible, the external evidence. And probably one of the most famous that many of you probably have heard about is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that happened in 1947. And a Bedouin shepherd boy was out looking for a lost goat and he'd come up on this area in the Dead Sea, and he was throwing stones up, and he heard a pinging sound, and he climbed up into the rocks and looked down, and there were these scrolls. One of the greatest finds. And these scrolls went back hundreds. In fact, in one case, there was an Isaiah manuscript that was a thousand years older than the earliest manuscript we had at that time in 1947. And when the Hebrew scholars begin to compare that Dead Sea manuscript of Isaiah with the one they currently had from which our King James Bibles are translated, there's virtually no difference. That tells me that these men who copied the Bible, these scribes that wore out their eyes and gave their lives to this, did so with incredible fidelity and faithfulness and reliability. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so when the devil says the Bible can't be trusted, it's filled with this, that's a lie. The devil and anybody else that says it is wrong. And then the devil will say to you, well, the Bible's outdated. There, there are better ways to live. And you see, the devil knows that people don't value truth anymore. People today value convenience. They say, is it easy and does it work? That's called pragmatism. And people are very pragmatic in their approach today. People today are very individualistic. And the lie is that you just need to live for yourself. That you are the standard. And you can only judge what's best for you, what is right and wrong, based on what you need. Right in beside that word individualism, because this is what this really means, I am my own God. I hate to even ask you to write that because that's a lie. You are not your own God. But that's what the devil says. And that's what individualism means. That, that I'm like Shirley McLean talks about being a little God, that we're all little gods. Well, she was wrong about that. That we are not little gods. That we don't come up with the standard of right and wrong. But you know, this individualism approach is not really anything new. In Judges chapter 21 or verse 25, it says that everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. That, that's individualism. That's the spirit today. Or Proverbs 21 and verse 2, the wise man said, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. You're not your own God. You're not the standard of right and wrong. And you think about a society where everybody, if everybody really practiced that? You know, how would that work for you out on the highway if you decided what was right and wrong on the highway? Well, I'm going to drive on the left side of the road like they do in England. Because that's what I feel like doing today. And when you're pulled over and you tell the policeman that, say, well, no, you're, what's wrong with you? 
That won't work. Well, we understand that when it comes to the laws of the land sometimes. Or maybe when it comes to filling a prescription. Or when it comes to very simple things in, in business or in life. Or the rules that we follow in sports. <laughs> and yet when it comes to religion, when it comes to the Bible, we think individualism will work. Well, individualism is a lie. And then the devil lies to us through secularism. Secularism can be summed up in three words. God is unnecessary. And what that simply means is that we don't necessarily not believe in God anymore. We're not atheists or infidels. That maybe we don't think we need God too much in our lives. And so we live in a culture today that has, in the past 50 years, systematically been removing God from every area of public life. From schools, from government, from media to newspapers, and in some cases even churches, and in some cases even spiritual advisors like Dr. McSwain. America has become a very secular society. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the missions to Bible class, there was, there was a certain understanding of morals and of what is right and what is wrong. There were more people that went to church back then that didn't. Now it's reversed. So where do people get their morals? Where do they get their ethics? Well, from TV, from movies, from pop stars, from, from uh, sports heroes, you name it. And people will watch some television show, some talk show, where they have people on counting some kind of bizarre lifestyle, and the audience will hoot and holler and laugh and applaud, and people sit there and watch it like that's the norm. Like everybody thinks that way. I don't guess Jerry Springer's on anymore, is he? I hope not. I don't know if he is or not. I never did watch it. But I know he was very popular for a while. You know, people watch stuff like that. You know, they got to scour the country to find people to go on these shows. Everybody's not living like that. Secularism has invaded our culture today. And the devil tells us that that's the way to live. Of course, Romans 1, 21 through 25 describes a very secular attitude. Not retaining God in our knowledge and allowing ourselves to do those things that are not convenient. And becoming wise in our own eyes and our own estimation that we become fools. That's exactly what happened in the Gentile world as Paul describes in great detail in Romans 1. And that's where we see our world today. Secularism is a lie. And then the devil lies to us and tells us well, everything is just relative. Relativism. Relativism can be summed up in two words. No absolutes. And what that says is, what's truth for me may not be truth for you, and what's truth for you may not be truth for me. Now, that's wonderful if you don't want guilt, because that way there is no guilt. It's a lowering of the bar so I can clear it, and I can feel really good about myself. It comes up with phrases like this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're honest and sincere. Oh, really? Well, try accidentally drinking some poison and thinking it's cough syrup and see how that works out for you. I mean, the, these are ridiculous things, and we understand that everything is life, the truth is narrow, but what we value in our country today more than the truth is tolerance. We say if you say something that's true, especially from the Bible, you become judgmental. But it's not judgmental to tell the truth. Certainly we must speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 16, but we must speak the truth. If I say to you, the president today is Ronald McDonald, and you say, uh, the president's Donald Trump, 
then you're right and I'm wrong. There's no relativism to that. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. But you see, the idea of tolerance has even changed today. When I was a kid growing up, that tolerance meant that you had a respect for other people with whom we may disagree. And that we treated them with, with worth and with dignity, though we disagreed with them, that you tolerated certain But now tolerance has come to mean that we must agree with that and we must celebrate it. That we must exalt in something that someone is doing that is wrong. And that every idea, every philosophy, every lifestyle is equally valid, equally true, and equally right if you think it is because it's all relative. Young people, when you go off to college and a professor says to you there's no absolutes, just mark it down. He just made an absolute statement. And he's absolutely wrong. It's a lie of the devil. See, the devil's a liar. And the father of it, Jesus said. The Bible is relevant in 2017. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we've heard that verse many times. But we may wonder, can God's Word really guide us in everyday life? Are the, are the scriptures really relevant in, in the public forum and in our relationships and in our culture? Well, Paul's affirmation is that they are relevant. And from this passage, we learn four very important truths for us. Here's the truth. The Bible is useful for teaching. Because in the Bible, we learn about God. We learn about creation. We learn about how the world came into being. We learn about how humankind came into being. And all of the philosophies and all the evolutionary ideas that learned men they come up with notwithstanding, they're wrong. They're just wrong. The Genesis account is right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And anything taught differently, and I don't care where it is, is wrong. The Bible is useful for teaching. In the Bible, we learn about Jesus. We learn about His redemptive work and His plan for our salvation. We learn how to live. We learn how to treat other people. We learn how to experience joy and peace and contentment in life. Isn't it ironic today that we're living in a world that's rejecting the Bible as the Word of God and people's lives are falling apart? And little kids today are going to counseling? And that people are dealing with guilt. And they're dealing with all kinds of emotional problems. And their lives are messed up. It was no accident. Because when we reject the teaching of the Bible, that's going to be the consequence. The Bible teaches us about the eternal arrangement of the home. And about marriage. And our culture today is rejecting that. We're on a fast pace of just throwing it all out the window. Well, we're sowing to the wind. We're going to reap the whirlwind. The truth is the Bible is useful for teaching. But secondly, this passage tells us the Bible is necessary for rebuke. You see, sometimes we get off the path. We get away from the Word. We stray from what is right. And the Word reprimands us when we're wrong. 
As I said a moment ago, we're living in a culture where nothing is to be judged wrong, no matter how bizarre it is. And yet the Bible tells us there's times that we're wrong and God clearly tells us that some things are right and some things are wrong and sometimes we need to be rebuked. Don't despise the rebuke of a wise person, of a godly person, of a person that cares about you, of a person that will take the word of God and show you where you're wrong. The Bible is necessary for that and that we need the Bible for rebuke. Not of that, the Bible is essential for correction. The Word doesn't just tell us we're wrong. It corrects us and guides us and directs us, and it gets us back on the right path of living once again. And through repentance and confession, we can correct our course, and we can get back to walking God's way. The Bible is essential for correction. And the Bible is imperative for the training in righteousness. Once we return to God, He just doesn't leave us there wondering what's next and where do I go and what do I do. The Bible equips us for right living. Peter affirms that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness in every area of life. That we can be educated and prepared and disciplined to live life in all of its fullness, praising God and serving other people and leaving this world a better place. Times change and cultures vary, and societies sometimes shift their values. But God's word, young people, and old people, and all people, is unchanging god's word is unalterable and it is applicable to every area of life the bible is the light of the world and the fact is the devil will lie to you and tell you, you can get by just fine without it but the devil's wrong I want to close with a tribute i didn't write this and i wish i knew who did it's been used many times some of you may have it written in your bibles or in a bookmark but i think it's true and it goes like this the bible contains the mind of god the state of man the way of salvation the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers its doctrines are holy its precepts are binding its histories are true its decisions are immutable Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, and it will be opened at the judgment and remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility and will reward the greatest labor and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. The Bible is the Word of God. And to say otherwise is a lie. I commend it to you, ladies and gentlemen.
as we sang in the song earlier, God speaks to us through the Bible. We hear his voice. No, not literally in a mystical way, but as we read it, and we hear the voice of Jesus calling us to come to him, to follow him. And we hear the voice of Jesus saying through the pages of this book, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Be added to the body for which I died and purchased it with my blood. And so as we close our service this morning, we commend to you God's holy word. Would you come to Christ in obedience? Would you obey the gospel of Christ? Would you be a Christian? If you've wandered away from that pledge and obligation, would you come back? Come back to him. Come back to his word. And come back to that prior commitment. We can help you. Would you come as we stand and while we sing?